All right, and welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I am your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And we're back. We're m- making it into February just under the wire here. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Hopefully. So who are we talking about today? Um. Well, well Emlyn, before I... <laughs> divulge exactly who it is i guess my question for you is um what's your favorite university (laughs) um my favorite university because this person got their phd there and this place has given phds and degrees to a lot of the women that we've talked about is it columbia yes (laughs) Yay! You're <laughs> uh, pro- yeah, I'm partial to it. Probably one of my. F- uh, yeah, I don't know if it's your favorite. Sorry, I shouldn't have presumed. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I just know it's your alma mater, so hopefully you like I it. I have more least favorites than favorites, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, so today I'm going to. <laughs> Are you okay? Sorry, the tea the tea went down the wrong pipe. Oh my god, are you okay? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <coughs> we're good, we're good. Okay. Tell us, tell us. So today, I that might be one of my worst questions ever, by the way. <laughs> but they're always last minute, so they're never good. Um today I'll be telling you about Mary Maynard Daly who was the first African-American woman to earn a PhD in chemistry from Columbia. Well, not the first one to Yay! earn it okay, from I have Columbia. Definitely... Yeah, but that's where she got her PhD. Yeah. Good. I, I have definitely seen her name all over the yes. place. And have, she's been one of those women that I've wanted to cover yeah. and just haven't managed to. So good. It's good we're getting yeah, finally, I'm excited to learn about her. Yes, yeah, same. She's been on my list for a long time and I was like, oh great, I'm doing it, you know? Uh nice. at last. So Well it's good we're get, we're getting it in <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. <or> today. <laughs> if it's later, it's fine. Okay. So yeah, it's a thought that counts. Right, right. Okay. So let's see. Mary Maynard Daly was born in New York City, New York, on April 16th, 1921. So this was, you know, just a few years after the end of World War I and a little over 100 years ago, which is just kind of crazy to think about. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was 100 years ago. Yeah. And let's see, she was raised by her parents, Ivan and Helen, in Corona, Queens, which, you know, lots of people know is a borough of New York City. So born and raised in NYC, had a great love for NYC her whole life. Yeah. Um, So both her parents and her grandparents encouraged education, like a lot of the women we talk about, you know, it seems like. Hey, parents, if you have kids, just give them books and be like, yeah, learning is great because it seems to be a good, I just, (laughs) PSA for all the parents out there. Um, I love this. This has now become a partial parenting channel. (laughs) 
just FYI. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. This is actually a parenting podcast. Not that I have kids. Um, but, you know, I've learned a lot through the podcast, you know. Yeah, we know what's up yeah. with kids. So, yeah. So much of her interest in chemistry came from her father, who had actually started a degree in chemistry at Cornell many years like earlier. But he had had to drop out before completing it because he couldn't afford his room and board. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that was probably in the early 1900s or maybe even earlier. So it was just, you know, came down to money for him. And he, I think he ended up working for the post office. But he always had this love for chemistry, but couldn't just, just couldn't pursue it at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And in addition to his influence, her uh, Marie's mother and grandparents would read to her and her brothers, and they all had many books on science and scientists in their home. So she really was, you know, had these influences around her as a child, and I think attributed her interest in, in science to to that somewhat. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So given her interest in science and education, and she received pretty high grades in school, she was accepted into a prestigious high school in Manhattan called Hunter College High School, which apparently, I looked this up because, you know, when they state the high school, I'm always like, yeah, it's that probably means, I don't know. Um, but it's still considered to be one of the top schools in all of the United States. So that's pretty major that um, she was nice. admitted. And then, let's see, at the time it was an all-girls school run by faculty of Hunter College and City College of New York. And her teachers encouraged her oh. love of science and her interest in pursuing a career in chemistry. When she graduated, she enrolled in a small school called Queens College so that she could continue her studies while remaining close to home. So still, and that also, you know, kept down costs too because she could live at home. Uh, And why leave New York City if you don't have to? Yeah, and your family's there, you know, it's a great place. Oh, New York City. I know. I haven't been there forever. Yeah, me too. No. Let's see. So she graduated from Queens College with her degree in chemistry um, at the top of her class. And knowing that she wanted to continue her education and career even further, she enrolled in a chemistry master's program at NYU. And... Her professors at Queens College helped her pay for her master's degree by giving her a fellowship and a part-time lab assistant position at Queens College. So she was able to work at her alma mater while um, doing research for her master's degree at NYU, which is a lot. That's awesome. Yeah, but... I mean, yeah, it sounds like a lot, but it's amazing that they you know, tried to 
that her college tried to fund her master's degree at a different college. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. And I think that that's support. Yeah. They definitely, they must've believed in her, you know, and been like, she's going to do great things and she's a great student and deserves, you know, deserves this. So they encouraged her and wanted her to succeed, which is nice. Um, so she completed her master's the next year and then stayed on at NYU for a bit to teach chemistry and save money for further schooling um, because she was like, I'm doing it. I'm going the distance <laughs> in my schooling. <laughs> I'm going all the way. Yeah. So in 1944, Marie started her PhD at Columbia. <laughs> Nice. She's going there. She's like, I need to hit every (laughs) university. I know. I thought that was funny that she didn't stay at any one or like, you know, do all of her degrees at one New York City school. She went to like all these different ones, which is funny. You got to test them out. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, So, yeah. So as this was the height of World War II, in some ways... (laughs) She was lucky, which no one was lucky that there was a world war. But women were being encouraged to pursue career avenues that hadn't been previously encouraged. Yeah, and especially this was a time where I think I read only 2% of all college degrees were given to African-American people. Mm -hmm. So for her to pursue a PhD... Um, that was really, really remarkable. And also lucky for Marie, there was a female faculty member in the chemistry department at Columbia who, um, this is, her name was Dr. Mary L. Caldwell. And she um, took Marie on as a student. So I feel like that's nice. really rare. Like we haven't read about a lot of women faculty mentoring women's graduate students at least I don't know I couldn't remember another story where maybe there are some but yeah anyway yeah I mean often we're talking about women who were like the one of the first women in their yeah department so they're often their advisors are men yeah because of that so nice I love it. Yeah. So let's see. Um, So Dr. So Mary Caldwell, she had completed her PhD in chemistry at Columbia in 1921, which was the year that Marie was born, which is just kind of funny. And she had been studying the digestive enzyme amylase. And so um, Mm. when Marie came to work with her, she also studied amylase, and specifically her dissertation was called A Study of the Products Formed by the Action of Pancreatic Amylase on Cornstarch. So I think amylase is just an enzyme that breaks down starches into sugars, but Mm. this her PhD wasn't accessible online, so I couldn't read more about it or find out more about yeah. the exact like methods or anything like that 
Um, but she received her PhD three years later in 1947, becoming the first black woman in America to receive a PhD in chemistry, which is incredible. Nice. Yeah. Yay. Wait, three years? Or yeah. <laughs> no, you heard correctly. Come on. I know. She could Give have done some of us a chance. Like two and a quarter PhDs in the time I did mine. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, really amazing. Okay, so after graduating, Marie moved to Washington, D.C., and I think this is the only time she lived outside of New York City, where um, she spent two years at Howard University teaching physical sciences and working with another professor there dr herman branson and i think they just worked on some physical chemistry projects there's not too much about that time Um, but Mm -hmm. in the meantime she pursued funding for a postdoctoral research position with another scientist alfred e mersky who was a molecular biologist at the Rockefeller Institute in New York City. And getting another one. Yeah. She's getting another one. <laughs> I know. I was like, I, I didn't it. even know there were this many colleges. Just you wait. There's more. <laughs> She'll hit them all. I'm pretty sure. So in 1949, she received a grant from the American Cancer Society that would fund that postdoc position with Alfred E. Mursky. And so she moved back to New York City and started that um, a study with him. And with him, she studied how proteins are constructed within cells and specifically studied proteins within the cell nucleus. And this was isn't really important because this was exactly the time when there was this huge race to describe the structure and function of DNA. Which, if you mm-hmm. want to hear more about that time period, should listen to the episode on Rosalind Franklin, right? Because she was, like, yep, a good part of that. <laughs> um, yeah. So she was working alongside some really amazing scientists, which makes sense because she's also an amazing scientist. And she was part of this really exciting moment in history, working with molecular biologists and setting proteins in the nucleus. And so with... Very cool. Yeah. So with Mirsky, um, she investigated the amino acid composition of histones, which we now know mm-hmm. are the proteins that bind to DNA and help it condense and they control like gene expression depending on how tightly bound they are to different segments of a chromosome. But at the time they had no idea like what these things do. They just saw there were proteins and that strands of DNA wrap around them. And so her job was to be like, what are these made of? Um, you know, what amino acids make up these proteins? So she found that histones from different organisms differed in amino acid content. And she described, you know, how some histones had a lot of lysine, whereas nobody had seen that in histones before. Um, 
just, mm. you know, kind of contributing to some research on like the variability of these proteins. And let's see, another essential component of this postdoc was Marie's study of the structures of purines and pyrimidines, which are, you know, mm-hmm. the A, the T, the C, the G part of DNA, where, yep. again, she had developed these methods of separating nuclei from tissues and to learn critical information about these different structures and this the information that she which i tried to read this paper and it was just like (laughs) it was it's a lot like the that whole time period is so hard to like reading old papers on dna from that time period is kind of confusing because Mm -hmm. of what i know about dna and what they don't know does that make sense i'm like yeah yeah yeah. it's hard to you're like kind of talking different languages yeah like yeah so it's hard for me to put into context exactly what specific contribution like this one paper was but um it was cited in watson and crick's no some of their nobel papers where they describe their experiments further they cite a paper cool. with um, Marie Daly and Alfred Mursky and their investigations of purines and pyramiding compositions as contributing to their work. So that is very cool. So she was part of this whole larger research group that led eventually to the description and discovery of the structure of DNA, which is awesome. Um, like I love when our different scientists kind of cross paths either intellectually or like physically yeah and it makes whenever we do this podcast i'm always reminded of how kind of how science is a collaborative process even though it seems so competitive a lot of the times and like Mm -hmm. maybe only one or two people get credit for like a body of work that spans hundreds of scientists if not more you know like okay you know watson and crick eventually wrote this paper that described the structure but they had to cite like a million other papers to do that and those contributions are should be just as important you know so um, absolutely yeah and it's just weird how some people get credit for what a lot of people have really worked on over time so this was just like part one of her career (laughs) And she switches kind of a few times. Yes, yes, yes. So the next thing... I love it when they switch it up. Yeah, so the next thing... Okay. Oh, wait, no, this is at Columbia. So she's she goes back to Columbia in 1955. Okay. She accepts a position in the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia, where she taught biochemistry... And began studying the underlying causes of heart attacks, collaborating with another professor there, Dr. Quentin B. Deming. So, you know, from DNA to heart attacks. I don't know what the logical progression was there, but hey, she <laughs> she just switched. I don't know why or how that And she's came still about. working on, like, proteins related to heart attacks um 
Sort of. Yeah, sort of. I'll describe this in more detail because I could kind of like translate more of this information and find a lot more on it because a lot of people consider this next part like one of her biggest contributions. Um, Not that her last wasn't as big, but this is maybe more her ideas too and like her major like this is my moment kind of science i don't know i don't really know there's just more about it i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah okay so this collaboration with dr quentin b deming would lead to more groundbreaking work and they must have enjoyed working together because in 1958 they both took new positions at yeshiva universities (laughs) Albert Einstein College of Medicine. So mm. I never heard of Yeshiva University. Well, actually I had, but anyway, just taking off another one on the list. Um, it's also in New York City? It is, yes. I should say it's also nice. in New York City. Nice. Um, <laughs> let's see. In 1961, Marie married another man. Not another man. She married a man, <laughs> Vincent... <laughs> I was like, is that illegal? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she married Vincent Clark. That's all I really know about him is that they got married mm-hmm. in 1961. And I, I believe they were together until he died, you know. So they were together a long gotcha. time. But um, okay. So during the decade or so of researching together, Marie and Quentin discovered a lot about heart disease and much of their work was funded by the American Heart Association. So to start with just a little bit of background, researchers at the time had found an association between high blood pressure and hardening of the arteries. And the hypothesis Mm -hmm. was that high blood pressure causes lesions to occur in arteries just because of like the intensity of blood flow essentially gotcha and then plaque builds up on those lesions kind of somewhat as part of the a healing process but also i think of just things getting stuck i'm not quite sure what Mm -hmm. the hypothesis was at the time Um, And this plaque is made up of a combination of fats like cholesterol and other substances. So let's see. Uh, Yeah. And when these plaques build up, they can cause blockages in arteries and they can cause hardening of arteries. And let's see. I don't want that. Yeah. Eventually. Oh, no. I was reading about. my arteries soft. I was. When I started reading about all this, I was just like, I'm eating like lettuce for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to the gym tonight. But actually, I ordered pizza last night. So they're (laughs) just like, (laughs) I can envision the cholesterol. Um, Okay. So, Yeah. yeah. And so this is bad because eventually if an artery becomes totally blocked, um, it, it will become incapable of supplying blood to the heart or o- and oxygen mm. to the heart, and that results in a heart attack. Okay. So yeah. just some background on, like, kind of the context of why this is all important and what they knew at the time. 
This type of coronary artery disease is the leading cause of death in the United States for men and women. And I think in the 50s, it was probably common as well in the 60s or maybe just becoming more common. Though I think it's it's just become more common as food has become kind of less healthy, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. So... Again, so then at the time, Marie and Quentin were interested in investigating specifically how and why cholesterol builds up in the arteries. So people didn't know, like, why cholesterol? Where does it come from? Um, Things like that. And they Hmm. wanted to know why do some people get plaques or hardened arteries and not other people, you know? Uh, what environmental yeah. factors influence plaque formation and so on. So first they focus on cholesterol synthesis since they knew it was a large component of artery plaques. And most if not all of their experiments, at least these cholesterol ones were done in rats where I guess you could clamp arteries, like, like physically clamp them to raise the blood pressure artificially so like you close off some of them so that more blood has to go through others and so the blood pressure is raised yeah i don't know how they do it and it's like i feel bad for the rats reading all of this um so that would make (sighs) these rats hypertensive or like hypertensive is just another word for high blood pressure and they found that Uh, regard yeah so in one experiment they simply just measured the blood fats of hypertensive and non-hypertensive rats and found that overall the rats with higher blood pressure had higher levels of blood cholesterol and so they were like okay Hmm. you know which causes which then does the high cholesterol cause the high blood pressure or vice versa um or who knows? Is it just a random correlation? They have nothing to do with each other, right? So in their yep. next study, they fed both kinds of rats, high blood pressure, not high blood pressure diets with high fat or low fat. And interestingly, they found out that regardless of diet, rats with high blood pressure had higher levels of cholesterol in the blood and specifically had higher levels of cholesterol synthesis in the heart. So that Mm. was like pretty remarkable to see that for whatever reason, high blood pressure causes cholesterol to be synthesized. Um, And in another study, in a longer term study though, with a similar setup, they also found an influence of high-fat diets on the level of cholesterol in high-blood pressure rats. So there's this impact of diet and an impact of high-blood pressure on cholesterol. It's like they basically found that cholesterol can cause high-blood pressure and high-blood pressure can cause high-cholesterol. And it becomes this really horrible positive feedback loop. Where they, oh yeah, yeah, they influence each other to create these blockages in arteries. Um, and yeah, I I really thought that high cholesterol was caused by high 
Or high blood pressure was caused by high cholesterol. Yeah, and it is. I didn't is. realize that yeah. they were separate. But also that yeah. high that yeah, high blood pressure can cause increased cholesterol. Yeah, see, I, I didn't know that second part either. And I thought that was really wild. And I was like, wow, yeah. no wonder Upsetting. it can be so hard to really like come back from. Yeah, so... So yeah, that's why some people with high blood pressure, or a lot of people with high blood pressure also have high cholesterol. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, anyway. So so yeah, they were really the first people ever to pinpoint this really critical relationship between high blood pressure, cholesterol, and heart disease. And uh, describing how you know, they're all related. And so um, that is really considered one of her largest contributions, I guess, to, yeah, um, to like health and science. And yeah, pretty major. That's huge. Yeah. And from here, and though I have, I don't know, and I do think this was also recognized at the time she was a scientist, you know, I didn't read a lot about like awards, but she was on a lot of committees and did receive other types of recognition that I'll talk about a bit later. So I think, you know, people knew she was a great scientist, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's like, and then they won the Nobel prize and there wasn't, there wasn't anything like that here, but it seems like this was still a big deal at the time. Um, even without mm-hmm. that kind of recognition at a higher level, I guess. Yeah, gotcha. Um, okay. And then from there, the two of them went on to study other factors controlling high blood pressure. So they investigated the role of hormones. They investigated the role of smoking on blood pressure and other components of diet like sugar. Um, but I couldn't find links to all of these papers, so... Uh, Unfortunately, I can't, you know, describe them in as much detail. Yeah. Um, And some of her work on smoking also focused not only on blood pressure, but its role in cancer and how it contributes to lesions in lung tissues. And the only study, I could find one study on this, and it I like couldn't read the paper, but I was kind of glad because the study was done in Beagle's. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think no, beagles are so. Beagles? And so all I got from the abstract was like that the beagles smoked pipes, like, <laughs> which is like kind <laughs> of adorable, but at the same time, not oh, good. good for... I feel like there would be a calendar made of that. You right. Know, just yeah. Pipe smoking like, beagles. No. 12 months of pipe smoking beagles. <laughs> and also, I don't want to oh. know how they found out about the lesions in the lung tissue. I'm just like, uh. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. anyway. Why beagles? I don't know, but it was like. The Did pa- they just have, were those the only creatures that would smoke? <laughs> the only creatures willing to the smoke? The paper was titled something like, Beagles, a great model system for studying lung cancer or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Oh. But I, and then I didn't, also didn't look at, like, what side of this paper. I was like, no, I'm done. I can't go any further into the beagle smoking <laughs> I, I don't want to know about the beagles. 
Yeah. No, no. But she did study. So she she really like went into all these different. I, I feel like she was just kind of like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to do this. So that this is interesting. I'm going to do that. Like, this is a huge health problem. Why don't I put my expertise here? And like, um, yeah, yeah, she, I think she she had a lot of did a lot of great work, like culturing cells, separating proteins, identifying proteins, etc. But kind of just did all these different kind of biochemical experiments of different kinds. Uh, Okay. So then in the 1970s, she kind of goes to third phase of career, like third major switch, I feel like. Um, Gotcha. And she began studying amino acid use in cells and specifically was interested in creatine, which is... An amino acid. Ooh, I know about creatine. Wait, you do? Um, yeah, just because I've been trying to do weightlifting and everybody's obsessed with creatine oh, for like, oh yeah, um, giving you extra energy for exactly. training, and it's like one of the only legal, like supplements for that type of stuff. Yeah, that's really you funny. Know, like, yeah, yeah. That's all I know. I mean, that's all I know. Like, <laughs> I Googled, like, I, like, Googled creatine because I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, what's the basics of creatine, right? And yeah. a lot of the first Google searches were, like, you can just buy creatine powder for your smoothies, your protein shakes or whatever, yep. right? So it, it yep. is a huge market. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, so... Yeah, she was interested in uh, creatine because it is responsible for ATP recycling, so then energy yep. production um, in muscle yep. cells. Yeah. And so in 1980, she published a paper that showed the conditions that are necessary for creatine creatine to be absorbed into cultured muscle cells. So essentially identifying how does creatine get into cells, which nobody had identified before. And so she just, you know, took all these different muscle cells um, from different types of tissues and different organisms, and she investigated how temperature or sodium levels and other, like, complicated kinetics, essentially, of, of creatine uptake. And that that's considered kind of her third major contribution uh, is to that whole field of creatine um, biochemistry, essentially. Very cool. I I mean, she could have she could have gotten on this creatine train <laughs> and made yeah. so much money selling I supplements. Know. I wonder. That's really, yeah. I'm sure it took a while. Probably in the last, what, 10 or 15 years, it's become a bigger thing since the internet existed and people can kind of like be their own scientists in a sense. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's see. I think, oh, I don't know where. I didn't put this down, but she retired. Oh, no, this is later. This is later. Okay. 
So during her time as a researcher, she was also an advocate for minorities in science. So as usual, she was doing twice the work of non-minorities, you know, because that's always put on minorities to like, you know, recruit more minor. It's just like, yeah. Um, yeah. So, for example, she started a scholarship for minorities at her alma mater, Queens College, and she named it after her parents. And I think the scholarship still exists, which is cool. And she also strongly recruited for and served as a mentor for minority graduate students in her department at Albert Einstein College. And she served as a member or fellow of a bunch of organizations like the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the Commission for Science and Technology of the City of New York, and the American Cancer Society. So again, just like showing her how big of a sphere of influence she had, and especially in New York City, too. And she loved to garden and play the flute, which Mm -hmm. I was just like, that's awesome. And though apparently she had to switch to playing guitar in later years when she developed cancer and could no longer play the flute. Though I don't know, like, at what age this was or for how long. Um, Or, like, what, like, throat cancer? I'm trying to think, like, what. Yeah, I'm not. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I couldn't find more about that. So let's see. She officially retired in 1986 and would spend winter months with her husband in Florida, which, you know, I was just talking about winter and you were saying I should get a winter house and you got to get a winter house. Marie can do it. I can do it. You know, we should do it. Yeah. Yeah. And in 2003, she passed away at the age of 82 in her hometown of New York City. And yeah, that is my story of Marie Maynard Daly. So that's awesome. She lived a lot longer. Like she died much more recently than. Yeah. And she was retired for almost 20 years. Yeah. So it's the life. I know. Yeah. But she did a lot of cool stuff, and I wish there were kind of more in-depth articles on, like, some of these things. And I'm sure if I had university access, I could read more of the papers. But I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to get is an abstract on Beatles smoking <laughs> pipes. So, Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. That's amazing. No, yeah. that was great. I'm glad you covered her because I've been meaning... I've been very interested in her for a while. Yeah. She's in a non creepy cool. way. Yes, yes, of course. I, I totally understand. Uh yeah. <laughs> uh should we work? Work, 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 work. This is the Women Who Work section where we give shout outs to badass ladies making history today. Woo. Woo. So my shout out this week goes to Melanie During, who's a PhD student at Uppsala University Ooh. for her uh, recent paper that came out in Nature. Okay. Um, so this paper this paper uses fossil evidence to estimate the season when the Chicxulub asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula, causing the extinction of all non-avian dinosaurs. I do you ever think about dinosaurs and be like, oh, that could be me. 
like at any <laughs> like at any point yeah. going like an asteroid killing us all yes i'm sorry i, I try not to think I know. about i guess we can see asteroids coming at least these days yeah i think we would i mean like maybe that's even worse we would have <laughs> a heads up but we could maybe <laughs> blast it or something you know anyway sorry. yeah i just like no you're good sometimes you're good. that just hits like I just like get in my head about asteroids and dinosaurs. And, like, oh my god, it's so scary. It There's is. too many it other things to scary. think about. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Melanie During and her lab, or the lab she's in, they used fossilized fish from the Tanis geological site in North Dakota for oh. this work. So. This area, it was discovered in like 2019, and this site has um, fish that died within approximately an hour of the asteroid hitting. Whoa. Wow. And you might be like, how could they yeah. possibly know that, right? Say. So the reason that they can estimate things this closely is that um, when the asteroid hit, it then released all of these like impact spherules that kind of then rained down again wow. right after. And so um, these spherules were found embedded in the f- fish skeletons, oh. suggesting that the fish died at the same time and got pelted by these spherules. Wow. So they can pinpoint to the- an hour? Or they just know... That is their... Yeah. I think that's their estimate because it had to... I guess that's their estimate of like how long it would have had to be between right. the asteroid hitting and the things fall, be, falling wow. back to Earth. That's amazing. I mean, not like in a good way, um, just like in a kind of yeah, awe-inspiring yeah. science way. Yeah. Uh, and so they used growth rings on these fossilized fish to estimate the season of impact. So they were trying to figure out like if they could use this information to pinpoint when during the year the asteroid hit. Yeah, okay. So fast growth in the spring and slow growth in the winter results in these rings, kind of like tree rings Ooh. on the fish skeleton. Wow, I didn't know that. And so by either. studying when Yeah, so by studying when the rings stopped, so they could kind of figure out like when in that year yeah they were um and they found that the ring stopped at like a clearly at a beginning of a period of fast growth Mm. um they could estimate that the asteroid hit in spring so that the growth was still like very rapid but they hadn't it hadn't like slowed down wow that's amazing yeah and so um melanie during and her co-authors used this to try and estimate or to understand why certain taxa survived oh. this asteroid and others such as the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. Right. So understanding things of like the biology of in spring you're raising offspring and you're devoting a lot of your energy to that versus things in maybe the southern hemisphere that it, where it was actually fall and they were you know, yeah. starting hibernation and reserving all their energy. Yeah. So trying to utilize this seasonality to understand why some organisms survived and some went extinct. Wow. That's really cool. 
Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So um, this paper and the site itself is not without a little bit of controversy. <gasps> so re- relatively little has been published on the Tannis site. Oh. And so this this has left room for some doubt and uncertainty because there needs to be more papers. Yeah actually like published about the geology and all of the very very specifics of this site okay um and then another paper this isn't controversial but like another paper submitted around the same time but published last winter so a paper that's already been published for a little bit independently had similar findings so i'm going to link that other paper as well okay because they both both show this same result which is good and they both were like independently done yeah i mean no paper is the end all be all and it shouldn't be it's just like that's what they found in this study so it's just and two different studies that independently support a claim is like what we strive for in science exactly yeah you know agreed so um yeah so that's awesome so shout out to melanie during for this awesome yeah, paper that's really and cool. there's i'm gonna also put there's a couple like press releases about it and then she actually made like a video about it nice that's really good i love that so i'll link that as well um and then finally this isn't really a shout out but this is just like information so there's a Google Doc going around of labs supporting Ukrainian scientists. Oh, yeah. So nice. if you know of somebody whom that might be useful for, you can send it. So there's like 300 different labs wow. that say they have space and could sponsor Ukrainian wow. scientists. So I'll also link that in our show notes yeah. for people to spread around if they think that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um. So yeah, that's all. That's all I have. Those are my my women who work. Yay, amazing. Or my woman who works. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in this week, mm-hmm. and and every week, every, every month. month. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> once a month. Um, thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. Thanks to Artichoke for our awesome theme music. And as always, go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. <laughs> Bye. Bye.